It is 4 p.m. on October 2nd, 2020. Welcome to episode four of Law Review Squared, the Law Review Review. I'm joined today by Naila Graves-Mans. Uh, Naila, introduce yourself one sentence. Hi, it's Naila. I am a 1L at Dickinson Law in Pennsylvania. And I'm Tony Fernando. I'm also one out at Dickinson Law in Pennsylvania. Uh, reminder that the opinions here, those of the panelists, do not represent the view of Penn State Dickinson Law, the panelists present, or former employers, or any other entity. Contents of this recording do not constitute legal advice. Today's article is The Wild Wild West, The Right of the Unhoused to Privacy in Their Encampments by Carrie Leonetti, which appeared in the American Criminal Law Review in 2019. Uh, professor Leonetti is a professor at the University of Oregon School of Law. I chose this article because it overlaps two issues I'm interested in. Expectations of privacy. I used to fly drones for state agencies, and there's two types of state agencies who fly drones, those who consider expectations of privacy and those who are about to get a legislature tell them to. Also, homelessness or the unhoused has bothered me for a while, and also at MnDOT, uh, the agency had responsibilities for removing certain encampments from highway right-of-ways. And although I was never on a crew which was doing that type of work, I was involved in some planning for using drones to make that work safer. Before we get to the core of the article, uh, Naila, is criminalization through anti-camping, loitering, and similar ordinance a reasonable approach to homeless or unhoused people? And where you've lived, um, are there large homeless or unhoused encampments? I would say it's not a reasonable approach to um combat homelessness. And I have lived in LA and New York, and of course, everyone knows about Skid Row in LA, um, where there's tons of encampment, encampments of homeless people in their tents because they have no place to go. And I don't like them being arrested because mm-hmm. they're homeless. Yeah, it was really, um, for me, uh, homelessness first, like, showed up on my radar when I was living in Anchorage, Alaska, of all places. But there are, that's where people up there kind of gravitate to um, if they do lose all their options for housing. Um, And it really bothered me um, that, you know, we have several people die of exposure each year in Anchorage because they're homeless. And... Like, it's not right that people are dying of exposure in the United States. Um, but um, in this case, we have an article that's discussing whether or not those folks uh, have a right of privacy. Um, we start by discussing three recent uh, cases in state appellate courts. The author believed that the facts were indistinguishable between them, even though the courts reached differencing decisions. Uh, briefly, what were the facts in Pippin, Thomas, Nishi, and Tegland? And do you agree that they're indistinguishable? And is this something where state-by-state uh, state norms are, are different enough that disagreement between state courts is reasonable? Well, I think that there, there are aspects that make them similar. Um, all of them involved uh, a lack of a warrant, and all of them involved people living outside within um, tents, or they had tarp, they had makeshift tents, and all of them were arrested, and um, and also involved potential illegal activity. So I would say that they they have some similar aspects. You were saying that you don't think that they are indistinguishable. Uh, 
I think that there are, it, it kind of depends on what facts that the court is going to um, zero in on. So like in Pippin, when the officer approached the tarp and the officer thought that there might be, saw some movement and thought there might be a weapon um, and he found meth, that possibility of an officer safety situation might be a little bit different than in Thomas where they were looking for the stolen goods that they ultimately found in in uh, th- uh, that defendant's um, you know uh, box uh, that he was living in um, the author of the article um, considered them all to be the same um, but even so the courts kind of reached different decisions so in Pippin the uh, in Washington, they, the Court of Appeals had found that the uh, unhoused person did have a right to privacy. And in the other cases, they found that they did not. Does that seem right to you? Uh, what? I'm sorry. The Pippin, they had the right to privacy and the other ones did not. Well, Pippin involved right. the stolen clothes. And the other ones, the one I'm really challenged with is, is Nishi. Because he had a history of sending outlanders letters to officials that potentially threatened their life. And in that one, they found loaded shells. So right. I'm stuck in a rock in a hard place. Did they, should, should they have gone another route and gotten a warrant? And what would have happened had they not have found those shells? Was it worth saving the lives of other people in violation of not getting a warrant? That's where I'm a little bit stuck with that one. But then where the, the ultimate question I want to bring up is what constitutes a home? Because in the review, they were trying to define what is an actual home. Right. And so the uh, author was kind of trying to argue that your home is basically wherever you happen to live as opposed to something that was tied to a lease or ownership, uh, which is kind of the traditional way to look at where somebody's home is and, and by extension, where their privacy comes from. Um, there are certainly people out there now um, who have been unhoused for for years. Um, and it's not by choice, at least not from what I see in my experience. Um, what was your feeling on that? I believe that there are certain people that do not want a regular brick and mortar home. There are those people who are just born to be nomads. They might not have mental challenges. They might not have um, issues with working. They just simply want to be nomads. And how are we able to separate those people who choose a life of nomadic living or, or to those who are really suffering or to those who have mental challenges and are unable to hold a steady home. So I think there's three different levels, categories to homelessness. Those are by choice, those by force, or those who basically have no other choice because no one wants them because of their extenuating challenges. So all of these cases are are happening out in um, the Western states, at least all the ones that were provided here. Um, 
And at least the Colorado Supreme Court uh, in People v. Schaefer, which was mentioned kind of briefly in the article, um, used this concept uh, of it being traditional almost to sleep out under the stars or be ready to sleep out under the stars. Would that apply equally as well if you're in Pennsylvania or New York Um, or because those areas kind of don't have that nomadic tradition? um, Would it be reasonable to have a different expectation of privacy on the East Coast against the West Coast? The challenge, I will say, in in New York is is property rights. Uh, In New York City, no one it's not free to live. Mm-hmm. And do you have the privacy if you have set up shop on a backyard that belongs to someone else or in a park, um, which actually uh, technically a park belongs to a city. It belongs to them, belongs to everybody. The same thing with a sidewalk, this public space. Um, and I, I draw caution to the wind as we're defining what what is considered a home or what's considered public, what rights an individual has and where they should live because it can be easily taken advantage of to the left or to the right. Or to the right. Because if, a, if it's a public sidewalk and they say, you know, anyone has the right to set up camp on a public sidewalk then the entire sidewalk can be taken over and then you're not going to be able to walk there because now these people have set up shop or home right there on the sidewalk. So in places more of the West Coast, maybe Central America, where there's vast open land, we can approach it differently because it's not infringing on the space for the average person that's trying to commute between home and work or the grocery store. Mm-hmm. I Yeah, the, the thing with the parks is... Um, it's very real, right? So when we, we first moved to St. Paul, um, there were two small city parks that that were near our apartment building, which is right in downtown St. Paul. And by the time that we moved to come here to Carlisle, those parks were almost unusable because of homeless encampments that had popped up. Um, that said, people have to be somewhere, right? Um mm-hmm. And do you think that there's adequate notice um, as to where you can go if you're homeless to set up your tent? Um, I was thinking about this and talking to my wife about this um, also. as like, you know, if – and a lot of um, – a lot would have to go wrong for us to be homeless. But, like – you know, if we did lose our cars and just had tents, where would we go? And like the answer is, you know, we we don't really know. Um, so, do you think that the folks who are homeless have adequate notice that they shouldn't be camping where they're camping when that's happening? Um, I think word gets around in every community mm-hmm. on where you can go, where you cannot go. And that's why you'll see places like Skid Row in California. And now in New York, you have safe sleeping villages where Mm. they have allocated a certain amount of streets. This is where you can go. This is where you can set up. And so people are aware of where they could be. But then, and and I think most people who are, who find themselves, unfortunately, in a homeless situation or those who elect, to live in a homeless situation, they go there. But you, every once in a while, you'll have a dissenter. You'll have someone that's 
will set up shop wherever they are. And I find that happening, you know, few and in between. Um, in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, there were um, there were a few movements to kind of create additional non-governmental run shelters. Um, in one case, a hotel that had been shut down due to COVID uh, was rented out by um, community organizers who collected money to, to do that in order to provide a place for homeless people to live. But the businesses that were around the hotel um, got that, got that, new shelter evicted from the hotel within a couple of days of when they opened up. Um, do you think property owners have responsibility towards the people in their area who are trying to live kind of rough and out on the streets? Oh, I, I believe in helping the, the fellow man. I think that's, that's, uh, you know, your human responsibility. However, I don't believe that um, we should always take on the extra burden if we're going to sacrifice our own self at that moment in time. So, so you know, we're here in, a, in the city of Carlisle. If there was a homeless encampment up the block from me, I would probably go up there and help them out. Although I am living in a brick and mortar house, I would do whatever I need to do to help these people out. Or just make ensure that they are safe and they have their privacy in that space that they are in over here. However, if I was a property owner, I might be a little bit challenged because I'm the person who's paying taxes on this. And who knows what my financial situation is at this moment in time. What if I want to sell this property? Say, regardless if I inherited the property, I bought the property, it was it's my money that's paying the taxes on this property yearly so there is a responsibility to help each other but it's also a responsibility to help yourself and to make sure you're not taken advantage of so i then i will look at the government i believe that you know the government protects all of us whether we homeless inside of a house and i do think that there are our elected officials our municipalities are responsible for ensuring that that there's homes and privacy for everybody. So you think that there is an affirmative duty for the government to provide an opportunity for homes for everybody? Is that yes. uh, what you just said? Yes. That comports with what the author was talking about as far as the International Covenant on Economic and Social and Cultural Rights, um, which provides a right to housing um, but I did look that up, and the U.S. signed it but never ratified it. Do you think that's something that could happen in the United States? I mean, is that? I, mean, I, I think housing is a basic human right. Like housing, mm-hmm. food, medical treatment is a basic human right that everybody should have access to, and it is something that should be signed into law. Um, now, the standard of of living is something that we're going to have to revisit. Is everybody going to have marbles, staircases? But should everybody live in a home that's rodent-free? Yes. Should everyone make, have running water? Yes. Should everybody have their own private space inside of a house that is shared by multiple people? Yes. 
Um, so, and I, I believe that we have enough land and, and public land in this in this country where we could make sure that everyone is housed. I think you're probably right. Um, and I, I think that, you know, having... Yeah, even if if even if somebody is one of the relatively few people who is choosing a lifestyle that is nomadic, um, you know, they still have a need for some type of private. Just as a human, you have a need for some type of of space that is yours, right? Um, even if that space is kind of moving along. Um, from my context, dealing with um, government removal encampment removal operations. Um, I do think that once people are removed from the encampment and what is left is kind of the abandoned property that has to be removed from that space, I don't know that a privacy argument still holds for things that are left there. Would you agree with that? Repeat that question to me, please. So, like at MnDOT, um, a when encampments would would um, kind of form inside of the right of way for for certain highways, um, the Department of Transportation had an obligation to remove those encampments, and they would remove the people first. They would give them notice um, that they were being evicted they were given an opportunity to remove their things and then the people were removed and then the items that were left in that area would be removed. Um, do you think that there is a expectation of privacy for those things that are kind of left behind uh, when people are removed from their unhoused encampment? Or um, do you think that the government should still be trying to respect people's property at that point? I mean, at that point, that turns into um, an eviction. And from my knowledge as a realtor, when you are evicting someone or someone's abandoned the space for a period of time, you're re- as a landlord, you're required to take their goods and put their goods in storage. And to me, it would be a question of how you're disposing of the goods. You know, if, if they're leaving their personal property someplace, regardless of what I think is valuable or what's not valuable, I'm still obligated to put their belongings in a safe space for a period of time. I think it's unreasonable to hold on to someone's goods for, you know, years. But, you know, I would want to make sure they, I will go out of my way to post signs, speak to them in languages, try to find someone that's a middleman, to make sure that the information that they know, the notice that they're they're given to where their items are going, that's there. So I think that's the responsibility of the government, and saying you know we're gonna we're gonna house this for thirty days, six months, two weeks. That's something that legislation has to put together, and we need to find something you know a period of time that's fair. But if you're in, if you are blocking a public road because you need a place to live, we have to think about the rights that are being infringed on on the other end of people that are trying to use that road. Now, um, in the domain, that's something totally different where people have set up shops in their homes and now the government's taking it, taking it away to build a space what they say is for the good of the people. We will have to approach that 
differently? Um, so we're in law school to try and think like a lawyer. And the article really tried to persuasively argue that the um, homeless or unhoused person in their encampment at least um, deserves a right to privacy within their their tent or their whatever makeshift structure that they've created as their as their home. Um, can you make the counter argument that they should not have a uh, expectation of privacy in a temporary encampment? Yeah, my, my argument would be that they do not have the right to privacy in the temporary encampment because they do not have a lease and they do not have property rights. They don't have a deed. They're infringing on the rights of the technical property owner. And if you are in a space that you don't have rights to, then you're you don't have the right to privacy. Yeah. Now, do I that agree actually, with all of that? No, but right. that's the counter argument. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that is the, the, a reasonably sane counter argument. So the problem with extending a right to privacy in a temporary encampment, when that temporary encampment is not in a place where it has a right to be, is that that, creation of privacy uh, harms whoever owns the property, whether that's the public or the, uh, or a landowner, right? So almost from a policy perspective, especially in these states that are out, out West, um, it, it almost seems like the states should be creating zones where it's okay to camp. Yes, I agree. There, there should, and there should be places where it's okay to. So the, the problem we have that, or the challenge that we have with the society, is that we think that everybody is supposed to work, earn money, and any exchange is done by a dollar sign, right? There, are, we should perhaps revisit this expectation of the exchange of goods and, and money by working and receiving a dollar for the work that we, you know, that we've done. You know, there are so many things that people can do to earn their homestead. So perhaps, you know, one of the alternative has methods to combating homelessness and, and not feeling you're giving away something for free is to, you know, farmland. Maybe these people who are forced to live alone on the streets or choose, you know, choose can be say, you know, this is a safe place for you to be. But in order for you to be here, these are some duties that you need to have. And not necessarily structure them as a nine to five job, but, you know, these are the requirements that you need to do. A, a communal space, a commune, that's one solution. But we live in this society that's full of capitalism and the expectation that nothing is for free. But we might, maybe we need to revisit what exactly is free. Yeah. Because um. it's not going anywhere. Like, if you, like I watch old movies and something always pulls me to the beggar on the street. If you watch movies from, you know, that are set back in ancient Greece, ancient Rome, you know, different parts of like maybe Europe and London and, you know, 1755, 
there's always a beggar on the street. There's always someone that is homeless. Homelessness is something that is a part of society. It's not new. Over time, in parts of the countries and parts of the world, the, the stats rise and they low, they lower, but it's not something new. And you would think by this age, we would know how to embrace it as a part of society and not shun it. We need to figure out how to make it work. That way people like Pippin or Nishi, which I'm a little, I, I don't know how I feel about Nishi with the, you know, with the threats, that they still are able to have privacy and they're not forced into a world where they are using meth. Because there's a reason why one of them was on meth, right? There's a reason why someone's receiving stolen goods. The stolen goods might have been that way that person was able to survive. The meth, he might be dealing with mental challenges and that might be his way how he's, he's treating himself. There's always an underlying story with someone who is on drugs or stealing goods um, or even threatening people with guns in this case. So that's certainly true for the cases that were brought up here. One thing I'm concerned about for the country is that with COVID and with so many people who have lost jobs and, and you know, the rent protections are ending and eviction protections are ending, there is going to be a large contingent of um, homelessness. Uh, homelessness, people who would not traditionally be homeless um, in the very near future, right? Um, and, you know, it's hard to, um, I mean, even somebody who ha- is using meth shouldn't be just written off, but like it, it's even harder to like ignore somebody who could have been your next door neighbor yesterday, you know, if, if they're on the street. Yeah. In New York, you know, we're facing a crazy homelessness crisis and a lot of it has to do with gentrification and um, landlords that made a lot of money off of Section 8 tenants. And they figured out how to evict these Section 8 tenants or they've also bought people out of their leases People who've had leases, rent-stabilized and rent-controlled leases for, you know, 15, 20, 40, 50 years. And at the beginning of this crisis, they were offering $7,000 to move. These people did not realize how expensive it was to move. Or, mm-hmm. or all the, in, in New York, getting an apartment, you have to submit documents similar to buy, getting a mortgage. So they're not, their credit's not the greatest. They, they're not making four times the rent, which most places is three times the rent. New York is four times the rent. And so they're not fitting the criteria. So they found themselves in homeless shelters. I was listening to NPR the other day. There was a teacher in the New York City schools who has found herself in a homeless shelter with her three children. and But she's still working. And housing is a challenge there. So I bring that up is that the conditions of these shelters now on the exterior, they're pretty decent. They look clean, right? They might not be in the best neighborhoods, but they're shelters. And they're supposed to be gateways, temporary homes until you can obtain your own home or you can get a, a voucher. You can move into the NYCHA homes or a landlord will accept your voucher, which is another story about landlords not accepting vouchers. But 
one thing about the shelters, they will not allow you to bring a knife into the shelter to cut your vegetables. Mm-hmm. People living in shelters are often treated like criminals. So this right. teacher who is a teacher in the New York City public school system, right, is not allowed to bring a knife to cut the vegetables up for her family. They have to use a plastic knife. They're not allowed to have a blender. They're not allowed to have anything that's sharp. So this criminalization of people who are homeless is is ridiculous. Right. And I, I don't understand where that, that rationale is coming from. And that is a good point, and it's probably good food for thought. We are right about on our time. Um, so I think, uh, do you have anything you want to close with? Think about your neighbor and think about yourself, because it could be you living in one of those encampments. And I'll just second that um, that sentiment, and with that, we'll close. As always, a link to the article we discussed can be found in the episode notes wherever you found this podcast. Please like, follow, subscribe, and give us five stars on your platform of choice. Thanks again to Naingla for joining me, and audio post-processing was done by Mohamed Salim. See you next time. <laughs>